If you have a Bible with you this morning, and I pray that you do, open it to John chapter 7. If you have a marker in your Bible uh, for preaching here at Crossway, uh, it doesn't have to move very far. We're going to be reading the same 13 verses that we read last week. Uh, we'll be focusing on the rest of those verses, not just three of them. Uh, so if you have uh, a Bible with you, open it to John chapter 7, verses 1 through 13. As you're doing that, I would like to read from Ecclesiastes chapter 3. For everything there is a season, and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to seek and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away. A time to tear and a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. What the author of Ecclesiastes is getting at is there is a time for everything under the sun. And what he doesn't mean by that is that there is some sort of random experience generator that means that you will go through all of these things in your life, that these are just things that happen to people. And so you need to realize that in your life at some point in time, the die is going to be rolled and it's going to fall on weeping and that weeping will therefore be yours. That's not what he means by that. What he means is that these are things that are set by God. The season here is not a random season that you go through in your life, but it's a season that God has appointed unto people. The hand of God are in these seasons. They occur, whether they are good or whether they are bad, whether we would view them with pleasure or with pain. They are there because God has chosen by his good and gracious plan to give them to us. It is a season that is set by God. God directs all of our seasons, not just spring and whenever summer will get to us and then a very long fall and a longer winter. It's not just those seasons that God sets, but he sets all of the seasons that we have. Jesus has rightly said that we can look to the sky and determine what the weather is going to be like today, but we don't know the type of season that we live in. We don't know the times that we are surrounded by. Today, it is my hope that we can be awakened a little bit to the times in which we are living and that the word of God will help us see what kind of time we live in. So let us turn then to John and read those first 13 verses of John 7. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples may also see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world can't hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast, saying, Where is he? And there was much muttering about him going on among the people. While some said, He is a good man. Others said, No, 
he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. This is the word of our God. The first thing I would like you to see about the world and the time that we live in is first Jesus versus the world. Jesus versus the world. After the brothers inform Jesus that he must go to Judea, he must go to the feast, he must go to Jerusalem, Jesus says, I can't go because it's not my time. And then we find that he immediately uh, delays in going to there, but he eventually does go. And this has led a lot of people to think that Jesus is sort of being deceptive or purposely misleading the brothers, that he said, no, I'm not going to go to the feast, but then he ends up going anyway. I I doubt that it's deceptive on Jesus' part. He realizes that it's not God's plan for him to go to the feast right away. And even though that time changes for him, the time has turned. And so he ends up going later on in the feast. There's a good reason why. He's already stated that the Jews were seeking to kill him in Judea and that the feast and the festival would have been held in Jerusalem and it would have been a great time because they were expecting Jesus to be there for them to arrest him and to put him on trial. And Jesus knowing from his father that his plan was not yet to have come to fulfillment, holds off on that. And we can see that there is great wisdom in that because of what it does. By delaying, God allows the grumbling of the crowd to grow. And both dislike and approval grow as well. So therefore, when Jesus speaks on the last day of the feast, the crowd is in full anticipation and it makes it much harder for anyone to do anything about him. There's too much of a scene to be made now. If he had shown up at the beginning of the feast, they could have possibly caught him before much of a scene got going. But because they had to delay, because Jesus himself delayed, they could not arrest him. They couldn't take him in. So Jesus knew that his father wanted him to wait. But beyond this, like, sort of trivial bit of this passage, Jesus says something that is even more odd here. Jesus claims that he can't go to the festival, not just because the Jews want to kill him, not just because the time isn't right, but because, he says, the world hates him. Because the world hates him. Now, when we read that, we think possibly part of that is true, but when we look through the verse and we look at this context, we say, who is the world here because the brothers don't necessarily believe in him. We, we don't think that they have true trust in him, but they certainly don't appear to hate him. Even if you want to look at his disciples, which apparently he's been bleeding out of for the last six months as the, the disciples have just departed from him, those disciples don't seem at, at all to hate him. They don't necessarily want to follow him anymore. He, he says very hard things that they can't understand or unwilling to understand. They don't seem to hate him. Frankly, not even those in Judea hated him uniformly. Sure, there was part of the crowd who thought that he was deceiving people, but there's also a good portion of the crowd who thinks he's a good man. It doesn't seem like the world is against Jesus. But John knows what we know, and that is eventually, in the end, at the final calculation you are either on Jesus' side or you are against him. That the world and Jesus cannot coexist together. That because the world is sinful and fallen, because it is rancid and and broken, you you cannot have Jesus interacting with the world in a way in which they can just sort of coexist together. And while it might appear that some of these people are okay with Jesus being here, the end result is that there are two ways in the world. There is the way of Jesus and there is the way of the world and there is no 
in between. There is no sitting on a fence post claiming that you can be Swiss neutral when it comes to the issue of Jesus. You are either for him or you are against him. Matthew 12.30 makes that point. Whoever is not with me is against me, Jesus says, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. There is no neutral territory. There are no people who are seeking. They are either sinners or they are saints. They are either people who trust in Jesus or they are people who would like to scatter the people of God. But you cannot be neutral in these issues. It is either Jesus or it is the world. He cannot go up for the world hates him. And he, it hates him because he tells the world that its deeds are evil. He looks at the world and he says to the world, your deeds are evil, they are wrong. They, they do not have God in mind. At best, you are doing good things out of your own selfish ambition and pride. Friends, to be on the side of Christ is to realize that your deeds are evil. And to be on his side means that you allow him to look at you and to tell you that you are evil. That you do wrong and bad things. That you need to be saved from your sins and you need to be saved from yourself. Listen, the fall has left all of us ruined. We're not just broken. We are sinners. We actively break ourselves. Our culture, therefore, all of our cultures, even as we've prayed that, that the work of Christ might put those cultures back together and might make the culture more godly and more Christ-centered in everything, our cultures, because we are sinful, are therefore by nature fallen, fallible, and sin-filled and are evil in the sight of God. We who are on Jesus' side must, must allow him to speak to these things to show us how sinful we are, to show us how inhospitable we are, to show us how selfish we are, to show us how proud we are, to show us how angry we are, to show us our lusts, to show us our inability, our frank and natural inability to see our own sins. You have them. You don't just have sins that you know of and you're thinking, I'm trying to work on. You have sins that you are so blind in your sin, you don't even know it's sin. And history is littered with people who are holy and yet irascibly sinful in their their standing before God. God saves, but they were sinful and they don't even know that they are. If you don't let the word speak to you like this, and friend, let me tell you very clearly, you are very likely not a Christian. If you find that you never read the word of God, that it just doesn't matter to you, then you are not letting Jesus speak to you about your sin. You are leaving it up to your own ability to find out what is sinful in your life. And that's a bad way to go. But even worse than that, if when you read the word, you always think of other people's sins. Ah, that, I, I know Uncle Frank could really use that word. That's a good word for him. No, friend, it's a good word for you. You read the word of God for you. You don't read the word of God to tell others what they ought to do. You take the word of God and you apply it to the log in your eye before you worry about removing the speck in your brother's eye. If you find that when you read, you always think of other sins or that when you read, you always think, oh man, I'm really encouraged by that word. If the word of God only has good things to say to you, then you are not reading the word of God well. If you only read the word and think that you're glad that you have it all, figure it out, friend, you are likely not on Jesus' side because Jesus looks at people of the world and he says, your deeds 
are evil. Let him speak to you that way. Jesus is calling you out of the world, but to do this, he must be able to speak to your sin in the world. You have two choices. You can walk the way of the world, or you can walk the way of Jesus. But to walk the way of Jesus is to have him cleanse you from your sin, not just by shedding his blood, but by a continual and ever-present process of burning it out of you. Let his word do that. There are only two sides, no matter how it looks. And time will indeed make that clear because, point two, there is Christianity with the world. There's plenty of Christianity with the world. There's two groups here that I really want to focus on. That is the brothers and the crowd. The brothers live in what I would think is relative freedom. They can believe nice things about Jesus. They can believe in his miracles. They can even somewhat support him as the Messiah or the Christ. I don't know exactly how much the brothers know or how much mom has told them or how much they buy into it, but nevertheless, they don't seem to be against Jesus. They're certainly not anti-Christ. They are certainly pro-Christ, even if they don't believe and trust in him. But leaving aside for the moment that they weren't believers, Jesus says one other monumental thing in these verses. He says, the world cannot hate you. The world only hates me, but the world cannot hate you, which is a very, very strange thing. Why can't the world hate them? The world is filled with hate. It is absolutely chocked full of hate. It's chocked full of hate, not just against Christians. Speak to Muslims, who we think of as being people who oppress others. Speak to Muslims in Western China about oppression, and they will tell you that China hates us. Speak to Jews. Today, 45 years ago, 150 years ago, the world hates them. It continues to hate them, whether they are in Christian nations, supposedly Christian nations, or whether they are in the Middle East, it doesn't matter. The world hates its own. So why does Jesus say here that the world cannot hate the brothers? Because in the limited context that we have in John chapter 7, while Jesus is able to look at the world and say, the world hates me because I tell it, its deeds are evil, the brothers don't have that kind of problem. See, the brothers seem to be able to get along with the world and along with Jesus at the same time. There's nothing in Galilee that's forcing their hand to choose. They can say all the nice things they want to about Jesus. They can tell Jesus to go up to the festival. They can go up to the festival and have no fear of their lives because they can walk in both lands. They can try and walk alongside Jesus and they can try and walk alongside the world. The brothers don't cast dispersion on the world. They don't knock its deeds as evil. They don't stand against it. They don't see themselves oppressed by it. And they certainly don't see the need to fight against it. Sure, Rome's a bit of a... a, bug in their side, and really they could probably do with less taxes, but they're not really against the world. They don't charge the world with evil deeds. They get along with the world. And because they get along with the world, the world in its end has really no problems for them. In other words, even if we want to call them believers in some sense, and even if we call for them to have a confession here of some sense, it seems to cost them absolutely nothing. It is, it is costless. It, it, it does nothing for them. They can tell Jesus they believe in his miracles. They can tell him, we want you to draw a big crowd. They can tell him that they want him to be famous, and they can mean every blessed word of it, but it costs them nothing. 
So many folks in our world, and especially in the United States today, think that they say nice things about Christ and that believing minimally about him is enough to make them Christian. And frankly, they get along just fine with the world. The world cannot hate them because they have nothing bad to really say about the world. They have nothing difficult to say to the world. They go along with all the normal talking points. They say all of the right things to all of the right people. They live in their little social huts thinking that all is good and right in their small circles. This is, frankly, what we would call nominal Christianity. Not just people who kind of laissez-faire go down the world, but they are Christians in name only. That's what nominal means. They are called Christians, but they have absolutely nothing to say to the world. In the end, if there are two paths, Jesus and the world, these are people who think that they can bridge both. Friend, we must be more than Christians in name only. We must be willing not only to say difficult things to one another, to look at one another and say, brother, that is sin. Or even to the point where, brother, how you're acting, even if you don't mean it sinfully, looks a lot like sin and needs to be accounted for as such. You have to stop doing that. We must be willing to say not only difficult things to one another, but to the outside world. We have to be willing to say difficult things politically to both parties. You have to be willing to say difficult things to your neighbors, to your coworkers to face hate and persecution for the things we say. Not the way we say them, but for the things we say. You see, the brothers could be this way for only so long. But the bifurcation of the world into those who are willing to risk everything for Jesus and to those who are willing to walk on the path of the world would come to an end. That fork continues to grow and you can only straddle it for so long. We know of at least two of these brothers in the New Testament. The lesser one is Jude. The better-known one is James, him of the epistle James, also noted as one of the pillars of the early church in the book of Galatians. He was an influential man, and he was influential not just in the realm of Christians. He was influential in the realm of Jews. He was known as James the Just. The event that we're about to read of occurs in about AD 62 or 63, and we get it from the church historian Eusebius. I'm going to tell you at the very set, outset, there are parts of this that are undoubtedly made up. But what we do know is that the, the nutshell of what happens here is probably, probably true. And certainly that James was martyred. Eusebius writes, As there were many even of the rulers who believed, there was a commotion among the Jews and the scribes and the Pharisees who said that there was a danger that the whole people would be looking for Jesus as the Messiah. Coming therefore in a body to James, they said, we entreat you, restrain the people, for they are gone astray in regard to Jesus, as if he were the Messiah. We entreat you to persuade all that have come to the feast of the Passover concerning Jesus, for we all have confidence in you, for we bear witness, as do all the people, that you are just and you do not respect persons. Therefore persuade the multitude not to be led astray concerning Jesus." for the whole of the people, and all of us also have confidence in you. Stand, therefore, upon the pinnacle of the temple, that, that from that high position you may be clearly seen, and that your words may be readily heard by all the people, for all the tribes, with the Gentiles as well, have come together on account of the Passover. Now, I'm not, I'm not sure why they thought that pinning James was a good idea. He had already written the epistle of James by this point. He was already a pillar in the Christian church by this point. Maybe they're thinking that you are so just and you're so righteous that you must see that this disturbance of calling Jesus the Christ is going to bring Rome down upon us. 
And maybe that's their appeal. But if that was their appeal, they are wrong. They put him up on the pinnacle of the temple, the same place, by the way, that Jesus was, apparently, and and looked out upon everything and said, hey, you know, uh, throw yourself down and you, you won't hurt your foot. He was tempted by Satan there. James is also being tempted here to deny Christ. And so they, they, they put him up on the pinnacle of the temple and they say, why don't you tell us about Jesus? And James answered and says in a loud voice, why do you ask me concerning Jesus, the son of man? He himself sits in heaven at the right hand of the great power and he is about to come upon the clouds of heaven. And when many were fully convinced and glorified in the testimony of James, they said, Hosanna to the son of David. These same scribes and Pharisees said again to one another, Uh, we've done badly in supplying such testimony to Jesus. True. But let us go up and throw him down in order that they may be afraid to believe him. And they cried out, Oh, oh, oh. This just man is also in error. So they went up and threw down the just man from the top of the pinnacle, several hundred feet to the ground, and said, Let us stone James the just. And they began to stone him, for he was not killed by the fall. But he turned and knelt down and said, I entreat you, Lord God, our Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Not only did they stone him, but apparently they weren't great aim with the stones because that didn't kill him either until a fuller went and got a club and bashed his head in. James learned very quickly, you can't walk down both paths. You can't. The world will turn on you. You can't be faithful to Jesus and faithful to walk in the ways of the world. Now, many of us are called to martyrdom, but we are all called to live as though we are. We must be willing to lay down our lives for others. We must be willing to take up our cross, to live like we don't love the things of this world, and to not love the things of this world, to sacrifice our own bodies for the name of Jesus Christ. Friend, don't be fooled by the lure and illusion of a Christianity that is safe in this world, that has nothing to stand against in this world, and that has nothing with which to condemn this world. That is, the illusion that you can be friends in this world and with the world. There are only two choices that you have in the end, Jesus or the world. That brings us to the third point, that is Christianity against the world. Christianity against the the world. The crowd in Jerusalem was not under the same illusion that the brothers were under. The brothers thought that they could get along with the world because they didn't hate the world and the world didn't hate them because they were unwilling to say anything evil about it, but the, the crowd in Jerusalem knew better. They would, they would speak to one another. They would, they would grumble or they would say nice things about Jesus to one another and there was little hush, hush conversations going around that everyone knew were happening, but no one was going to speak openly about Jesus because they were afraid of the Jews which is an interesting turn of phrase because who are the Jews here? Uh, As far as I can tell, everybody's a Jew here, but they were afraid of the Jews, which is shorthand for John, apparently for the Jewish leaders because it's the leaders who had the problem with Jesus. Apparently, what they were hoping for was that if we just talk in sort of mumbled voices, we can keep out of the way of the leadership. That they can be against Jesus all they want to be, but as long as we don't raise our voices, we will be in the clear. We keep our head down, keep quiet, mind your own business, you'll get out alive. If you don't make any waves, you'll be fine. The problem is that those waves are always going to find you. Nicodemus, 
who is hardly a disciple of Jesus at this point, simply wants to hold up the anger of the Pharisees, and he simply says in verse 50, or verse 51, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? That is, he's totally willing to throw Jesus under the bus as long as it's done well. And even that isn't enough for them, and they berate him as somebody from Galilee, which doesn't sound like much of a put down for us, but it's like calling, saying to somebody, aren't you from Ohio? You don't know anything. Maybe that's, maybe that's just me. So he's not getting out of it. In John 9, a man who is born blind is healed of his blindness. He does nothing to bring the wrath of the Pharisees and the scribes upon him. He doesn't go to them. He's not, he's not out parading anything around. They come to find him. Listen, the world isn't going to leave you alone. The world isn't going to say for very long, it's okay, you guys can do what you want as long as it's in private and think that you're going to get away with it. Eventually, that will come to an end because the world hates Jesus because Jesus speaks about the world as though its deeds were evil. At some point, you will have to call out their works as evil. At some point, you will be you will need to be willing to suffer for that which is right. You will need to stick your neck out. You will need to show your true faith and, like your Lord, when the time comes to suffer the wrath of the world for the glory of God. Let's be clear as to what persecution is as well. It is the state or the authorities or anyone with power bullying, trampling, and imprisoning believers for their faith, but it is not just that. Jesus defines persecution outside of just physical persecution. In Matthew 5, 11 and 12, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Listen, persecution is physical, yes, but the persecution can also, can also come from the prophets that came upon the prophets and that come upon you will be of reviling, of saying slanderous things against you, claiming that you did all kinds of evil things that you did not do. You must be willing for that to happen, friend. You have to be willing to allow the world to hate you. That doesn't mean that you don't stand up for the truth defending yourself. But that also means that you don't avoid it by not standing up in the first place. Listen, I, uh, I am not a prophet or the son of a prophet. My dad was a welder. I'm a preacher. But I am saying nothing different here than what Jesus said in Matthew 7, verses 13 through 14, where he said that you should enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And there are those who enter by it that are many. But the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. So like, like Jesus, I can tell you this. First, the idea that America is a Christian nation that was filled with hope, peace, love, kindness, and Christ lovers was always and will always be a false narrative. It is not. The 1950s were not the apex of Christianity in America. Neither were the 1740s. It never existed never existed. Those who think that this is the case, who lament how far we have fallen from that state of grace, were too at home in the world to see the difference. They were too sidled up to the world. They thought that they could walk in the ways of the world and walk in the ways of Jesus, and they were wrong in that. 
I had a neighbor just the other day talk to me, as I've heard so many people do, about how bad things have gotten lately. Friend, honestly, that's more perception than anything because crime is down, historically. It goes down. And yet, at the same time, we have this appearance that everything is worse today. I doubt it. People haven't gotten worse. If anything, we just get to see their sin more clearly. People are not getting more sinful. They're just getting more evidently sinful. To think that we lived in some sort of utopia decades ago or when you were young, whenever that happened to be, only denies the biblical statements on the nature of man and the voices of those who were crying back then that this world is not all it claimed to be. And there were plenty of them in the 60s, in the 70s, in the 80s, in the 90s, in the aughts. There were plenty of voices crying out that there is brokenness in this world. To think that that world was a utopia is to deny their voices and to not see the sin in our own lives. In the end, if you are at home in this world, you are ill-fit for heaven. For Jesus is, in the end, always standing against the world, even as he loves the world and is willing to give himself for it. Second, Do not be deceived into thinking that the Constitution or something else is going to stand in the way of persecution coming to you. It will not. Not only does God not care one iota about the Constitution of the United States of America, he has given you no personal rights, and he will gladly trample all over the rights of religion when he says no one's going to blaspheme against me in my presence. But the devil doesn't either. Don't be deceived into thinking that persecution is not coming for you if it isn't here already. Now, it's true. Some of you are older. You might go through the rest of your lives. I might go through the rest of my life without having any sort of persecution widespread happening against me on American soil. That could very well happen. But to think that this will not happen to our children or to our children's children is just deceptive. Just deceptive. All the arrows are going in one direction here, guys. All of them are. To think that the pressure to conform to a narrative of the world that is at odds with fundamental Christian beliefs might be beyond your time, yes, but that day is fast approaching. Pressure is mounting in Canada, it's mounting in California, it's mounting in New York, it's mounting in a number of places, and it will eventually fold into the Midwest. And even if it passes your time, it will, will come upon your children or to their children. And I don't say this so that you will lament their fate. And I'm sorry that this is going to happen to you, but this is the way of the world. I'm saying it to you because you are having a hand in their fate unless you do something about it. If we are not ourselves modeling and living serious lives, devoted to the things of Christ above everything else, if we don't take seriously the call to discipleship and making ourselves serious people when it comes to these things, if we don't demonstrate a fervent love for the things of the Lord and a fervent hate of the things of the world, then our kids will never, ever be ready for the onslaught that is coming to them. They will never be able to stand under the weight 
that is about to be poured upon them because all of the world is going this direction. And the weight of the world out there is great. We've been sheltered for a good long time because of kind of standard Christian values on things. Those standard Christian values are crumbling. And when they eradicate, the weight will fall on our children, if not on us. And unless our children have strength in their legs from the gospel, have their spines fortified with the word, without shelter from the battle in the church, they will crumble and they will fall. And I don't mean that they will fall to the persecution and that the persecution will come upon them and they will suffer it. No, no, I mean something much worse. They won't fall in persecution. They will fall by avoiding persecution. They will, unless they are strengthened now, end up denying the one that has bought them. They will publicly deny in force what you have privately denied by weakness. Friends, Jesus is better than the world. You believe that. You're here because you've confessed that. Live like that. Live like he is indeed the most glorious, powerful, kind, gentle, and trustworthy man in the universe. Place your hope in him. Follow him. Keep his commandments. For in the end, this is where our hope is found. That Jesus died. And not just to save us from our sin. Not just to save us from God. Not just to to reunite us with God. Not just so that our sins wouldn't be upon us. But he died to save us from this world. Galatians 1, 3 and 5. 3 through 5. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. That word stands forever. That present evil age was true in Galatia in 50 AD. That present evil age is true today in America in 2019. He has died to your sins so that you might be freed from this present evil age. Listen, friends, the time is coming, and indeed it is now. Let us be serious in our faith, emboldened by the word, empowered by the spirit, to lay down our lives as living sacrifices and bring glory to our incredibly and most gracious king. Let's pray. Father, give us eyes to see the fallenness of the world around us and give us hearts that long to escape it. Show us the beauty, the glory, the majesty, and the wonder of who you are in Jesus Christ so fully that we might no longer be deceived by the aping and the mocking and the second-rate thrills of the world. Father, I realize that my words certainly cannot do this. They can impart the greatness of Jesus to your people. I cannot speak enough or highly enough of the holy might and glory which is found in him. You And you alone, through your spirit, can do such a thing. So allow us to see him, to really, truly see him, that we might lay down our lives in holy sacrifice for the joy which is set before us. We thank you for your son in his name. Amen.